Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me in the studio this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line, we have writer and broadcaster, Candice Holdsworth. Hello. Coming up on today's show, can Gen Z win a war, the Islamists wreaking havoc in Britain's schools, and the re-education of Jordan Peterson. So the UK government has been forced to deny that there are plans to reintroduce conscription. It's been uh, a hell of a week. It's been, <laughs> <laughs> there have been... Uh, Various figures from the MOD and from NATO have been warning that uh, the UK is closer than ever to a potential war with Russia, and the British Army doesn't have the numbers to cope with it. Now, Tom, this um, suggestion of conscription has sparked a lot of interesting debate as to Mm -hmm. whether the younger generation is up to it. No, it has. And it's the sort of debate that often swirls or has swirled in recent years, particularly in the wake of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, where people have been, on the one hand, incredibly inspired by the mobilisation there, by Ukrainians standing up for their nation and for their communities and so on. But there being this kind of sneaking suspicion that in an increasingly kind of self-loathing West, the young mm. people aren't necessarily going to be up to it. I mean, if you look at the polls um, in terms of... It, the only numbers we really have around things like kind of compulsory national service and what have you, is something like 80% of 18 to 25-year-olds oppose even kind of one month's compulsory military service. But m- most age groups do actually oppose it, yeah. incidentally. Um, I think the 65 pluses are about 50-50. <laughs> the further you get away from actually having to do it, the mm. more likely you are to be in favour of it. Um, on the one hand, I mean, I- I've been struck by this, this slight kind of air of... Um, the, the, the slight surrealness about some of the discussion because it's kind of was set in train by that speech by Grant Shapps, yeah. defence secretary, a couple of weeks back, where he was talking about we're moving from a post-war era to a pre-war era, and we need to get ready. And this is in the context of a relatively small army by historical standards, and the fact we got in the process of you know destroying our own industrial base even further than it already is. Um, so them trying to talk constantly about serious times whilst being mm. quite unserious people in many of the policies that they're pursuing. But as you say, it has this week kind of settled onto this discussion about young people. And I think it's one thing where, on the one hand, um, no one can necessarily kind of second guess what would happen in the instance of um, the, actually the country being threatened and such. Yeah. But at the same time, there is a... A, a strange almost surprise on the part of um, commentators of a certain age which say you have had a generation which has been socialised into a culture which is treat, expected to treat patriotism as something a little bit suspicious it's yeah. not something that you're to be congratulated on something that might lead you to be referred to prevent or something um, that is also constantly taught that um, the country in which um, they're expected to defend is kind of indefensible morally, yeah. morally <laughs> historically speaking um, and also the fact that the kind of culture in which young people are socialised in is one which tends to focus on the self rather than mm. service which tends to focus on a sense of vulnerability rather than a sense of courage or any of those kind of more traditional values shall we say that used to be celebrated so for them to suddenly turn around and be like they're quite shocked that young people aren't necessarily they're not signing up signing up <laughs> they're not necessarily gung-ho for it it's a little bit strange all that being said people aren't <laughs> people don't want war yeah, people don't yeah. want to throw themselves into conflict i think that's more or less going to be a kind of historical um uh, continuity mm. shall we say between generations 
But um, it's it's fascinating how this conversation is, is cranking up. Yeah, I mean, it is worth stressing that the, that we're not at war, <laughs> technically. Mm. And there, there just seems to be a sort of inevitability about um, the way the discussion is going, especially, you know, yeah, Grant Chow's speech. It, it's a, a given that we're in a pre-war world and mm. they've decided that the war is going to be with Russia for some reason. You know, mm. we know that Russia is threatening Ukraine, but we haven't necessarily seen any evidence that they're capable of advancing past Ukraine, let alone interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Threat- that size, size Threatening our way of life was how the head of the army <laughs> puts it in this. And as you say, whilst they're obviously menacing Ukraine at the mm. moment, um, the, the problem is when people talk about the threat posed by Russia, it obviously serves a kind of propagandistic purpose for people who are keen on boosting numbers in the army or boosting defence spending or whatever yeah. it might be. Um, the kind of useful bogeyman in that respect. Um, but there's also an element within certain sections of the sort of Western for- foreign policy establishment, which is when they talk about war with Russia, there's an element of sort of wishful thinking mm. in that they have been spoiling for this kind of <laughs> conflict for a very long time. They see it as a kind of necessary test of Western metal, with mm. otherwise sort of decadent times. Um, and it, it takes nothing away from Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine to suggest that a lot of that kind of bellicose rhetoric and confused policy making and kind of postures that have been made towards Russia played their part in bringing us to the point of conflict that we're at at yeah. this particular moment in time. So there's a lot of things to separate out here, but it has been fascinating how the kind of generational mm. argument has functioned in all this, not least because you have a lot of commentators of a certain age who even if there was a mass call up at the moment would probably be age-wise just shy of it. Um, people who have never actually served <laughs> in yeah. the conflict themselves and who actually in large part raised the generation. They're currently suddenly decrying, mm. seemingly so keen on conflict and so keen on testing the young people's metal. That's been quite interesting, Oga. Yeah, I mean, Candice, I mean, just thinking about, you know, the younger generation, I, 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 we shouldn't blame them for many of their faults, as Tom's suggesting, you know, is that they were raised in a certain way. Mm, I, I think that any generation, I mean, any generation that's facing a crisis, they're never going to feel equipped to do so because it is the crisis that shapes you. I mean, you're not fully formed before it happens. I mean, if you look back to World War II and the D-Day landing, some of those boys were as young as 18 years old. They'd never seen a day of conflict in their lives. And yet they were capable of incredible heroism. But I think that you have to really feel it, that there's an existential threat to your way of life, to your liberty, to your family, to everything you love. I think in that instance, people will want to fight and they will want to join. But if people don't agree to that, like, say, in the Vietnam War, when so many young people just did not want to join that effort because they didn't believe in it, then you're not going to see it. And I think that we can all sense that something's coming, some conflict is coming. But like you say, is it going to be with Russia or is it going to be with someone else? And I don't think we can project too far into the future yet what that is going to be. But I really do think that if some existential crisis did occur, I think people would step up and you would see incredible things. And, and Tom, I mean, again, it's, it's Grant Shapps and other sort of military leaders. Are they not in, in some sense um, almost masking their own failures? You know, mm. They say we're not prepared. So they're looking to young people to fill in the gaps. But, you know, we have degraded our capacity to arm ourselves. Mm. Um, our industrial basis doesn't work. You know, they haven't been able to recruit people. In fact, they've been leaning on many of the sort of tropes we've been talking mm-hmm. about in an effort to recruit people. People might remember the army said they want snowflakes mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they want a more diverse army. And the army is going to go green as well. You know, mm-hmm. in some ways, they're trying to appeal to some of the worst aspects of the younger generation. Yeah. And also there's been a series of quite 
interesting, as you say, not just sort of ad campaigns, but also scandals. There was the RAF scandal recently where it's found to be actively sort of discriminating against white recruits, turning people away who want a career in the mm. Air Force, who are desperate to serve, it seems like, but because they don't fit the diversity criteria because they're not going to be looking good on the front of the brochure yeah. um, as they would see it, then they were being turned away effectively. It was absolutely insane. So you have, on the one hand, some quite gung-ho, sort of bellicose rhetoric or some wishful thinking on the part of some people within the sort of defence establishment. But at the same time, the state of affairs being so unserious, yeah. not looking like a country that is readying itself for some sort of conflict. Um, and I think Candice makes a very good point, which is to say that um, when the chips are down, things can be very different, of yeah. course. And that was a lot of the discussion about Ukraine. There was this mm. sense that it was so divided, um, that it was so corrupt, that yeah. the younger people in particular are... Obviously, they'd be compelled to serve, but at the same time, they won't have that... They won't be steeled by, you know, that kind of sense of national self-belief because it was so divided, because of the fact they felt that they weren't being led by the right people and so on. And yet, of course, that's not what's taken place. Because when you when your nation is invaded, it's, yeah. you, it's your own community, it's your own family, it's your own friends who are at threat. So it's not an abstract proposition yeah, in the way that it's being proposed Yeah, they're not fighting for Zelensky or for, mm -hmm. for NATO or for any of these other mm -hmm. things that they're accused of doing by some people online. Know. Exactly. It's about the, the survival of themselves, their communities, mm. their families and their nation and way of life in a very direct fashion. Um, and on that, I think it's um, worth saying that whilst, you know, whilst all the sort of criticisms um, that we've been discussing of some of the um, rhetoric that we've heard in recent days in relation to the younger generation, there is obviously something quite striking about a general climate that feels like nothing's worth risking it all for mm. that um, nothing is worth standing up and trying to defend that is a sort of undercurrent of our age i think something which young people have been socialized into to a certain extent the idea that the world only really extends to yourself and your own <laughs> and your own sensitivities and feelings about things um, but as i say and as candace has already suggested um that's not a uh, luxury that people have when they are actually threatened by yeah. that kind of external menace and military threat definitely so two schools in london have come under severe pressure from islamists uh, first of all there's been the this uh, barclay primary school which has told pupils they're not allowed to wear pro-palestine badges and um, stickers and flags and so in response um they've been sent bomb threats uh, masked men have climbed up the school gates to put palestine flags on the school Parents and activists have been campaigning to um, overturn this policy, and so points the school has even had to close early to um, because teachers fear for their lives. Essentially, elsewhere in North London, we've had the Michaela School incident, where the school has been felt compelled to ban prayer rituals, um, and then and for that, it's been again faced with threats, an intimidation campaign. Teachers have had rocks thrown at their houses. And it's even being dragged through the High Court um, over this issue. Candice, what the hell is going on here? I think there's a pattern. I think we've seen it in various incidents. I mean, we also saw it with that, that school in the north, like you were saying, um, where the teacher was forced to go into hiding. We've also seen incidents in France. I think that what needs to happen is that when religious zealotry emerges like this, in a context where teachers are being threatened, pupils are being threatened, death threats are being issued... There needs to be um, a strong response from the police and from the community. And I feel like what happens is the schools are forced into a defensive posture, like with this Barclay primary, where they 
said that they're going to go online. Well, no, they should not be forced to go online, and a school shouldn't, and a teacher shouldn't be forced to go in hi into hiding. The people who issued these threats should be told that will not be tolerated in a free society. But that isn't what seems to be happening. Tom, it seems almost incredible the way that the authorities often tend to side with the mm. the thugs, with the Islamists, or at least whether it's by just simply not protecting mm. um, the schools adequately, or we don't know what the outcome of the Michaela school case is, but we already know that um, they've been given a huge amount of legal aid um, to pursue this case, despite the backdrop being, you know, it's clear which side is the Islamist side and which side is the side of secular um, and liberal education. I'm always struck by the double standards in this area, because if you had a situation where you had hardline religious conservatives or people who wanted to impose their particular political or religious view onto a, on a state secular school. Um, if that had been the sort of blue rinse brigade of old, people would have laughed them out of town. And certainly yeah. if there was any kind of suggestion of violence or threats, that's something mm. that would have been dealt with very clearly. There would have been a moral clarity about that particular thing. And yet um, when the individuals in question if are Muslim and when the cause in question is Palestine, suddenly people lose any interest. I mean, that's the most striking thing is that people just back away from this particular discussion. They like to pretend that it's not really going on, that there yeah. haven't been a spate of cases like this in, in recent weeks. And I think one thing that's been in recent years, I should say, and that I find completely bizarre. I mean, it's just obvious that this is a clear-cut threat. I mean, one thing that's been interesting about the both the Barclay Primary School situation and the Michaela Community School situation is that you have had at least pushback from the school themselves. Yeah. I mean, the thing that um, originally sparked the um, protest outside Barclay Primary School was because of the fact that there was this... Um, incident where students had showed up to, I think it was a children need day of all these Palestine badges. And obviously the school was concerned about some of the things they were saying. It was seen to be extreme and so on. Sent letters to the parents as a consequence of that. Didn't want this divisive politics to pollute the school environment. Mm. And obviously with the Michaela Community School, where you have had this, um, this high court case over their refusal to have a prayer room, which is for a mix of practical reasons. They don't have the space to have it but also because of the fact that they really try to avoid anything which creates any kind of differentiation between the pupils which segregates yeah. them along racial or religious lines and as a consequence of this they have this philosophy of kind of compromises you know mm. you can't expect the school to perfectly reflect um your own um what well, accommodations will be made but at the same time the point is to stress what they have in common and to make sure they have loads of kind of common activities which aren't carved up along racial and religious lines so they have been putting up a fight but as you say there's not any of that backup from the authorities necessarily yeah. there's not any of that backup from broader sort of civil society and the um, government even the government are quiet action. about all of these whenever mm. they come up they just stare at their shoelaces and hope that it goes away um, but it's not going away, and mm. it's something that we're going to see more and more of. Particularly as it's been seen, it's been has been quite clear since um, the Hamas-Israel war began, is the fact that young people are being kind of used as sort of a sort of stage army, politically mm. speaking, in certain schools. Um, they are being used to try and push back against some of the boundaries to protest, to go on a kind of strike action, yeah. which has been organised in certain parts of East London and so on. Um, so this isn't going away. You just hope that the people in positions of authority um, were willing to take it on because what is at threat here is, as you say, the kind of secular education, which surely should be something that people are willing to defend, particularly in a diverse society as ours is. Yeah. And Candice, I mean, what do you make of the fact that, you know, the silence of the left on all these questions, they're either silent or actively 
support it. I mean, there have been some lot of criticisms in The Guardian and places like that of the Michaela School for doing multiculturalism wrong and not yeah. backing into the, you know, not caving into the demands to have a, a prayer room. You know, they said they're being too inflexible, things like that. What do you make of that aspect of it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's two things going on. I think one is the fear of appearing Islamophobic when this is in no way being Islamophobic. This is just this is just not having tolerance for extremist or coercive behavior because, you know, as Catherine Verbal Singh had said, they have a very multicultural school. They've never had any issues, but it became an issue when a group of people started behaving in a way that they were bullying other peoples and they were forcing other peoples to be more religiously observant than they otherwise would have been. So that was a very specific incident that happened. So it's not Islamophobic at all. And then I think the other thing as well is, is they confuse, confuse it with freedom of religion. So, you know, this, you know, why couldn't you have a, a prayer room? What's wrong with having a prayer room? But as Catherine Birbelsing has said, this would go against the ethos of the school because the teachers wouldn't be able to manage it. The pupils would have to do it on their own. And up until then, there was never an issue with having a prayer room. Nobody minded until that this sort of extremist behavior emerged. And I think that they're not confronting the reality of the situation. And I think that is a lot to do with fear, you know, with what, not wanting to appear bigoted or racist in any way. But it's got nothing to do with that. It's upholding secular values. It's holding, upholding free expression. It's also upholding the right of individuals to be as religious as they choose to be without pressure from others. And yeah, and it's, it's important to stress that often when we're talking about, you know, rights rights to religious observance in Islam. We're generally talking about Islamism and not Islam itself. You know, there's been a lot of good reporting on the fact that, you know, in Pakistan and Turkey, they don't stop school for prayers and things like that. You know, it's not a, it's not technically a religious thing. It's often just a it's just quite hardline people insisting they have their mm -hmm. way and insisting that public space bend to their will mm -hmm. almost. And, and it's quite clear as well that and I think you see this in many of the protests which have erupted around particular schools. Um, is the fact that, yes, there's going to be an element of a couple of parents or families who are particularly upset or, by this, but also it's, it's leapt upon by a certain yeah. type of kind of Islamist activists. You see a lot of the same faces at the same demonstrations, mm. um, and they use it as an opportunity to try to push, to try to get some sort of propaganda win. And it's we shouldn't lose sight of how disgusting this behaviour is because of the fact that they are essentially kind of bringing all of this attention, all of this aggro to what should be a place in which, you know, in the case of this, primary school children are supposed to be there, you know, yeah. learning their ABCs, and yet there's um, aggravating protests outside mm. the door. There's rumours swirling online about a young girl supposedly being bullied because she was Palestinian, something that the school in question has said they found no evidence of mm. whatsoever. And just trying to use this to further a political agenda. Um, and, you know the children's education and well-being um, be damned. So, you know, aside from anything else, it's really incredibly disgusting behaviour. But as you say, this, these things are often um, not necessarily just the uh, organic concerns of Muslim parents being, yeah. making themselves felt. It's often something which has become very politicised, very leapt upon mm. and weaponized by certain groups of people who are really desperate to push at the boundaries and, and chalk up some kind of win for themselves yeah. in that sense. Definitely. So Jordan Peterson has lost his battle with the woke moralists, as he might call them, of the uh, College of Psychologists of Ontario. A court has basically upheld um, their right to send him on a social media training course, uh, which will cost him $225 an hour, and he'll learn how to express himself um, in a less forthright way. Uh, Candice, uh, Peterson has described this as re-education, essentially. Yes. He's got a point, hasn't he? 
He has got a good point. It is. And he's, it's simply because they don't like his political opinions. I mean, this is why he's been forced into doing this. There's no, he, there's no evidence that he's broken any rules, that he's behaved in an inappropriate way. It's just simply that, that some of what he says, which is very controversial and he pushes the envelope, but that's who he is. That's just his personality, has offended some people. And now they're trying to find a way to challenge him, not through democratic means, though, but by going through the courts. And it should never have gotten that far. And the Ontario Court of Appeal may be able to rule that the Board of Psychologists has this power to do that. But it should never have got that far. It's the same with the Catherine Burblesing and the Michaela School incident. It should never have gone as far as the courts. You know, we need to be able to come together and discuss these things as individuals, as as a community, and not force each other into doing things. And and Tom, I mean, yeah, the many of the tweets in question are simply about things like climate change, mm-hmm. criticizing Justin Trudeau and Jacinda Ardern, criticizing lockdown. I mean, mm. these clearly have absolutely nothing to do with his ability or otherwise to practice uh, psychology. No, none whatsoever, which is why it's potentially going to set such a dangerous precedent mm. because obviously, you know, I'm not sure if he still maintains his sort of clinical practice, but I, it's not as if <laughs> yeah. he's going in there and, you know, berating his patients with his views on plus size models or whatever, yeah. you know, this is a completely <laughs> separate issue. Um, and, it, and it sets um, a potentially chilling precedent, as I say, for people who aren't Jordan Peterson, by which mm. I mean they are not fabulously famous, <laughs> wealthy, yeah. able to challenge these things through the courts. Uh, it's effectively creating a precedent whereby if you want to continue to have your clinical practice, you therefore need to keep your political views to yourselves. Or even more corrosive than that, you should keep your political views to you, to you yourself if they're of a certain type of political yeah. view, you know, if yeah. they are ones that are slightly more against the grain, if they aren't ones which aren't perfectly acceptable amongst the sort of people I imagine run this particular regulator. It was fascinating some of the language that was coming out of the ruling. I think it was in, when it was in the divisional court, um, they found that on the one hand, there is nothing here that threatens the individual's freedom of speech, but it's entirely legitimate for the regulatory body to set rules which limit their freedom of speech. <laughs> you just think, <laughs> how do you square that one? Mm. Um, but this is something which is in, which is becoming an increasing problem, which is to say that um, via all kinds of different mechanisms, whether it's one's sort of professional body, regulatory body, or what we've also seen in the UK via even someone's trade union. Yeah. Um, whereby people are either being punished for expressing certain views or not being defended when they're punished for expressing certain views. And it's something which is going to be incredibly corrosive to all kinds of professions, which Mm. um, it's going to just create a situation where if you want to um, have a job of a certain of a certain type or of a certain stature, then you've got to toe the line on absolutely everything. Yeah. Otherwise you've got to be looking over your shoulder the entire time. This is a terrifying precedent to set, but it's, um, it's fascinating how willing people are to set those precedents just because they don't like Jordan Peterson or another individual who's become the folk devil du jour. I mean, perhaps he should be wrapped on the knuckles for constantly tweeting in haiku, but that's another discussion. Um, Candice, I mean, obviously this is happening in Canada. Uh, Canada has got a bit of a global reputation now for being almost like the home of woke tyranny. Um, (laughs) Only in the past week or so, we learned that um, Justin Trudeau um, was, you know, criticised by a judge for exercising um, unlawful and unreasonable power to try and shut down the protesting truckers. It's the place where uh, trans ideology is running rampant and seemingly unchallenged. I mean, do you think it's significant this is happening in Canada? What have you made of some of the news stories coming out of there? I have. I mean, I've never been to to Canada, so I I can only go on what I've heard. 
But yes, there does seem to be, from what I've heard and what people have told me, is there does seem to be an intolerance of a diversity of viewpoints. I mean, the truckers protest was a huge, it was a really, really good example of this. I mean, they had legitimate concerns and yet they were completely pilloried as just being rednecks and evil and anything could be done to suppress their point of view. And I'll, I'll never forget it at the time. I mean, Justin Trudeau, who went from <laughs> trying to, you know, portray himself as this, you know, lovely liberal figure, suddenly started doing incredibly authoritarian things. And I think that we've seen this with, you know, supposedly liberal figures from Justin Trudeau to Jacinda Ardern all around the world. When, when, when their commitment to actual genuine liberalism is tested, they often fail. They often fail. I mean, their, their, their liberalism is paper thin. It is wafer thin. And I think we've seen a lot of that in Canada. You know, you see with Jordan Peterson. I mean, they just, they, 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 they use the, the, the courts, they use the law to try and force him to think and behave in a certain way. But I think they're going to fail. I mean, Jordan Peterson is huge. I mean, he's massive. But like you said, for, you know, people who aren't as well-known, who aren't as wealthy, that's going to have a massive chilling effect. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.